from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Wherever in the world you're listening to this, there's a really good chance you've experienced an extreme weather event in the last week. This summer has been bonkers. My newsfeed is filled with images of floods wiping out cars and buildings in India, beach tourists getting evacuated from wildfires in Greece, fallow fields and dead livestock from abnormal rainfall in China. Right here in my backyard in New England, town centers wiped out by massive floods and a heat dome spread out across the entire Northern Hemisphere, bringing us the highest global average temperature in the last 120,000 years. So with all this happening around us, we're going to do something a little unconventional for the moment. We're going to talk about winter. As a, a native New Englander, I'm always up for talking about the New England grid, whether that's summer or winter or any time of year. So Yeah, here we are talking about winter electricity loads while much of the country and the world is still baking in a heat dome. Yes, about as ironic as it possibly could be. Ben Storrow is a reporter with e News. He's based in Vermont, and we were both sweating in the humidity when we spoke. We'll get to the heat a bit later, which will tie this story together. But first, Ben has spent some time this summer focused on the health of New England's grid in the cold months because of a surprising trend unfolding across the region. A lot of people, state regulators, federal regulators, uh, industry and environmentalists, have been focused for a long time on the reliability of New England's grid, particularly New England's grid during the wintertime. Now, New England doesn't have its own fossil resources, so the region has historically been dependent on oil and natural gas imported from other regions of the country. Today, half of the generation mix is gas, but pipeline constraints have led to high prices and unscheduled power plant outages in the winter. The fear for a long time has been that we could have a winter uh, where it was so cold that um, basically the pipeline capacity would run out um, and there wouldn't be enough gas to go around uh, to keep our power plants running. And so we think about that, whether it's negative uh, 20 or you know 90 degrees with God knows what the humidity is right now. So we talk about it all the time. And there's one power plant at the center of these reliability concerns. It's called the Mystic Generating Station. It's the third biggest power plant in New England. It's just outside Boston. It was three miles away from my house in East Boston. I drove by it all the time when I lived there. And one unique thing about this plant is that it's served by liquefied natural gas. So it's not bound by pipeline constraints. But the plant has also come under economic pressure as shale gas made the economics of LNG less attractive. As time has gone on, you know, Mystic has run less and less. A couple of years ago, Exxon said they were going to retire Mystic. And ISO New England, the, the grid operator here, they, they went to FERC and said, if this plant closes, we could have power outages. Long, mind-numbingly boring FERC proceedings later, New England consumers basically are paying a subsidy um, and have been paying a subsidy the last couple of years to keep that plant open. But that those payments are going to end next year. So that's a big part of why we're talking about this now. So that brings us to this recent FERC meeting where the New England grid operator suddenly says it doesn't need the plant anymore. Why? Right. ISO New England presents this study that they've been doing, this in-depth study that they've done with EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute. And the study finds that no, actually, New England's grid is, at least in the next couple of years, is actually in really good shape. And a big reason that it's in really good shape is that 
New Englanders have have put so much solar on their rooftops that it is effectively stabilized our grid, at least in the short term. For years, rooftop solar was overlooked as a reliability solution in New England. But in a very sudden reversal, the grid operator says it's critical to keeping the lights on across the region. That was a finding that really blew people away. I mean, you could see, you know, the FERC commissioners were very visibly surprised and wanted to know what has changed and changed so drastically in just a couple months. Like, how could this be? This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, we'll talk with reporter Ben Storo about the value of solar in the winter and in the summer. First, we'll take a look at what's changed in New England, and then we'll turn our attention to Texas, where renewables have been critical for managing the grid during a sweltering summer that has brought record-breaking power demand. This podcast is brought to you by CorePower, an American manufacturer of battery cells for electric vehicles and stationary storage. CorePower founder and CEO Lindsey Gorrell is a former executive in the mining industry, and he's working with local and national policymakers to grow a domestic industrial base for clean energy. What the United States has lacked over the last 30 years is developing our own U.S. manufacturing. I think you have support across the board for that, and I think it's phenomenal. Stay with us to the end of the show. We'll have an interview with Lindsay about the value of public-private partnerships in clean energy manufacturing. Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. New England's grid has its own idiosyncrasies, but it's followed a similar pattern to the rest of the country. Over the last decade and a half, aging coal, nuclear, and oil-fired units have been retired. And in some regions, renewables have filled in the gap along with gas. But in New England, because of interconnection constraints and lots of nimbyism, gas has pretty much filled in the gap, not utility-scale wind and solar. We're this region that says it really, really cares about climate change. And you look at the state goals and what the states say they want to do. And then you look at their record of actually bringing clean energy online. And it's not good. It's not a good record overall. In terms of utility-scale renewable resources, I mean, you know, we pretty much are behind everybody. The one bright spot is rooftop solar. And one thing that's really cool is ISO New England has done a better and better job of sort of breaking out the rooftop solar numbers. And I don't know, my new favorite website, I bet it's a 
favorite website now. Many of your uh, listeners is uh, gridstatus.io, uh, and you can look at it. And you know, like today, just as a for instance, it's a sunny day here in New England. Um, right now, uh, behind the meter, solar is you know producing four and a half gigawatts of power. That's twenty twenty two percent of the load. It's more than nu- nuclear. So we actually the one sort of bright spot in this clean energy picture in this part of the country, at least to date, is behind the meter solar. So year after year, you have these uh, borderline panics about resource availability in winter. And then suddenly you have this finding that rooftop solar can shave enough demand to shut down the region's third biggest uh, fossil power plant. And that even surprised the CEO of the independent system operator. So why are we seeing this seemingly sudden turnaround on the value of solar in New England when we've known the value of solar in other areas of the country and we've seen this growth in the region? There's these theories about renewables and then there's the reality about renewables, right? Like, you go back a decade and the debate was all like, if we get high levels of renewable penetration, is the grid going to fail? You know, like that's where we were a decade ago. And and of course, it seems like SPP, the grid operator in the Great Plains, like every year is setting new records for, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but like just the vast majority of the system is running off of renewables the story of what what we've been told renewables can do and the reality of what they can do are two different things and i think one of the interesting things here was you talk when i talked to the state utility regulators i think they felt a sort of a, a sense of validation at some level um there's been some tension between the um state utility commissions and the grid operator the grid operators regulated by FERC. so the states have wanted them to move faster on clean energy than the grid operator was moving. But one of the things that they asked for in specific was a study like this that really got into the sort of nitty gritty of how the grid is actually working. And when ISO New England did that, it it produced this finding. I think that's sort of how we got to where where we are today. Absolutely. I think that's spot on. And what we found in grids around the country and around the world is that we're able to accommodate way more renewables than ever thought possible. And now most serious people who are studying this say we can handle on a lot of grids 80% renewable energy. But the reality is that we actually don't need that much renewable energy to have a huge impact on prices or on reliability, as we see in New England, like a fairly modest amount of rooftop solar, even though it's a really dominant form of renewable energy in the region, it's a fairly modest amount of solar, provides this uh, potentially enormous benefit in the wintertime. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are learning that uh, these engineering challenges aren't as great as uh, previously thought. I bet, like, one thing I'm sure you've heard over the years when you talk to, you know, utilities and whatnot, that they'll... To bring up this example of like a long period of time where it's cloudy and the wind isn't blowing and they'll say, you know, what is going to fill the gap in those moments? And one of the interesting things about this study is what ISO New England did 
they went back through the record, the historical record, and they they found like the worst weather events, winter weather events that we'd ever had, and then took the current grid and put that over those weather events. So like they were able to say like, you know, there was a cold snap in the 60s and this is what the wind speeds were and this is how much sun there was. And what they found was is even when renewables aren't generating a lot, just a fraction of their their potential capacity, they're giving the grid something. And that's actually pretty important because the the interplay here in New, in New England is these gas plants that we keep talking about as a sort of a reliability buffer, they've all installed oil-fired backup. They have oil tanks on site. Um, so if the spot price for gas gets really high or the pipeline got constrained, they can switch over and start burning oil. And what that means when you've got even a little bit of renewables is you have to burn less oil. And your reserve margin, the oil tank is basically your reserve margin. And you're stretching it out longer and longer because you're not having to burn it. And so it's just a long way of saying what that story about renewables and the reality is a, is a little different. So in considering the role of rooftop solar here, I mean, one of the takeaways of your story was we just need better forecasting for distributed generation that often sits behind the meter, on the customer side of the meter. And that's a theme that's consistent across the U.S. So as you talk to experts for this story, like what are they telling you about the value of distributed resources and the insufficient ways that we calculate that value? I think one of the most interesting things was I, I spoke to utility commissioners from Maine and Connecticut for the story. And what they both said is... This is gonna this study makes it so much like we're trying to figure out how to value all these different resources, um, both to solve our reliability challenges and to solve our climate challenges. And this study really helps us place a value on that um, in a way that maybe we wouldn't have been able to do before. It, it was a reminder to me that we really need to dig in. To, to the data and to the facts about how this transition is unfolding because summer solar, summer reliability, that makes sense. You know, I don't think you have to explain that too, too much in depth. Solar winter reliability, I think that's a little counterintuitive for a lot of people. So um, I thought that was what was sort of an interesting data point in this wider national conversation that we're having about reliability during the energy transition. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events.
I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, let's turn to Texas now, a state that has dealt with its own reliability challenges, both in the winter and in the summer. And here we are in the middle of summer. Texas has dealt with sweltering heat. It has seen near record demand consistently on the grid. And renewables have once again stepped in at key times of the day to prevent capacity shortages on the Texas grid. Um, Texas has has had two decades of strong wind and now solar development. And in the summer, they're increasingly playing an important role in keeping the grid humming during prolonged heat waves. So what are you seeing when it comes to the role of wind and solar on Texas's grid? Texas right now... Honestly, God, my new favorite site is this gridstatus.io. Um, dot io. I have not. I, I am. I can't believe I'm not on this. I, <laughs> I'm going to be immediately addicted when the, we get off. The this interview. minute you get on this thing, you are not going to get off it. It's, it's like uh, Twitter level addictive for energy nerds. <laughs> um, and it was recommended to me by um, Allison Silverstein, who's a, um, a, a, a prominent uh, energy analyst uh, from Texas, they have this one of the neat... It, so it basically, for anybody listening, what it does is it compiles all the real-time data uh, from the various ISOs and grid operators around the country. And one of the neat features that it has is it has uh, something called the record tracker. And I'm just looking at it right now. And basically every day... Texas is setting new records during this incredible heat wave that they're having for load, uh, for renewable output, and for solar output. And so it's just a really sort of amazing confluence of events in the, it, when you step back from it. Because here you have, on the one hand, you have the climate future that we have been warned about, like just incredibly intense heat record-breaking heat um, for this time of year. I guess we should add that little caveat in because it is Texas. It is a hot state. But for this time of year, this is not um, something they normally experience. So we have that on the one hand. And then we have this evidence of what the energy transition looks like on the other hand. And when you look at what's happening on those cool uh, gridstatus.io graphs, what you'll see is, you know, the the wind overnight or late in the day picks up and then it drops off and then as the as as the sun starts to come up and then the and then solar um starts to really go gangbusters and you know we're getting on some of the records we're seeing there are days where you know renewables are serving 30% of the Texas of Texas load of ERCOT load and i mean 30% of ERCOT's load it's 82 gigawatts 
that's a lot of renewables. And as your listeners well know, this is a grid that has struggled with that level of demand in recent years. And yet um, they have issued some voluntary conservation notices, but it has not been quite as um, white knuckle driving as it has been in the last couple of years. And a big part of that is is the amount of renewable generation and particularly solar that they're having. Well, as we look at the role of renewables, I think it's important to understand both their limits and their complementary nature. And those things definitely overlap. So solar is producing usually in the middle of the day that overlaps well with air conditioning. But what you see is the day's are continually hotter often later in the day. And as solar production curtails, you see continued demand. And we've seen that in an extreme form in California with, you know, that you see this load curve called the duck curve and the the belly of the duck. It it looks like a Loch Ness monster now. I think they're calling it (laughs) that because the neck is so high. But you basically have this belly in the middle of the day where demand drops because of solar. And then it just demand skyrockets because everyone's going home and running their air conditioners, et cetera. So you see this in Texas as well. You see this in other regional grids. But wind can come in during evening peaks and help support that um, demand. So, and then, and then, of course, you have more batteries being built in Texas. So, how is all this play, this playing together in a place like Texas? You know, it's one of the really interesting things um, about having this conversation about New England and Texas on the same day is they're they're so sort of polar opposite in some ways. Like New England is. Uh, an energy poor region of the country. Texas is an energy, I should maybe say energy resource poor region of the country. And Texas is an energy rich resource of the country in pretty much every sense of the word, right? And so I think when I talk to people down in Texas, the solar and the wind are really huge help. But because Texas is energy rich, it's really never done anything on energy efficiency because they have so much energy that it's cheap it doesn't matter how much you use from a cost perspective whereas new england is like you know energy efficiency champions because every kilowatt hour is really expensive so when i was talking to people both sort of grid planners and um there's a couple interesting climate scientists who've gotten very involved in sort of grid planning down there or commenting on it anyways and they you know what they we're almost unanimous in saying is, okay, so the renewables are sort of block one. And now we need to get into sort of block two, which is energy efficiency. How do we, you know, are there dynamic demand and um, storage? Like what are these other things? Because the thing we know is it's going to get hotter and hotter and we have to manage for that better. What is ahead for regional grids in terms of um, reliability concerns around weather, around how to accommodate more renewable energy. I mean, we're talking about New England and Texas, which have very different experiences, but they do show how markets can change with even a modest amount of renewable energy and about the risks involved under a climate insecure future. So what do you think these stories tell us about the nuances of managing grids going forward? I feel like there's a growing appreciation, at least in Texas and and probably in the rest of the country, of what solar can really do in the summertime. I think people see that, um, and and it makes intuitive sense. It's hot when the sun is shining, right? Like, 
and I, I think there is a growing appreciation of that. Um, as an interesting aside, to link these two regions of the country together again, one of the criticisms I did see of solar in Texas was, hey, this is all great, what solar is doing here for us now in the summer, but watch out in the winter. Um, it's not going to be able to help us so much then. So then to see the finding out of New England, that was sort of interesting. As you and, and your listeners know well, I mean, this is the hardest part of this, right? Like, how do we keep the grid going and how do we make it clean? And, you know, we're starting to push past that first phase of the energy transition where we're just bringing megawatt hours of clean power online. Um, and we're not really to the upward bounds of like, you know, we're not to 50 or 60% renewables yet, but like we can sort of see that coming and it brings all of these sort of interesting, probably the most complicated questions, which are like, how do you phase out these fossil resources that we're still relying on and we know are going to go away, but we need them for a little while longer. And like, we need to like, probably give them some incentive to stick around, but we don't want them to stick around too long. And like, that's, I think, really the the challenging question that is ahead of us. Yeah, we should also note, as an aside, that wildfire smoke here in New England has drastically cut solar power production. So none of this is easy to model out. No, I mean, I have to say, as a just as a aside on that, it's just... I used to live in Wyoming and was well accustomed to um, forest fire smoke and just seeing it here in New England is something that I, I frankly never thought I would see. It's just sort of mind-blowing. Ben Starro, a reporter for e News, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. This has been super fun. And that's going to do it. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. This episode was produced and written by me with help from Dalvin Abouage. Sean Marquand is our engineer. Original music came from Sean, who wrote our theme song, and from Echo Finch in Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm. It works with entrepreneurs and supports companies across advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. Thanks for giving us a holler on social media and hooking us up with a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Lots of people need to hear about the energy transition. There's so much cool stuff happening, and the more you help us out, the more people find this show and get inspired and figure out what's really going on. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. We will catch you next time. America is getting serious about building a green industrial base. Since the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, more than $70 billion in new clean energy manufacturing investments have been announced, according to a Canary Media analysis. The IRA has brought the top talent of guys to teach us how to win the Stanley Cup, all focused on us now to get there. Lindsey Goral is the founder and CEO of Core Power, an American maker of battery cells. He's also a hockey player, hence the Stanley Cup analogy. Core Power is building a gigafactory in Arizona, and Lindsay is heartened by the surge in policy support at the state and federal level that make factories like that possible. It signals to the market that private investors are now interested in supporting the build of domestic supply chain because the support is there. 
And that's important, you know? It will take time, but we're moving like we're, we're never moved before. I spoke with Lindsay about why public-private partnerships are so important for building America's industrial capacity in clean energy. So wrapped up in this green industrialization strategy that the Biden administration has been pushing is this idea, which is a very long-established idea that we need public-private partnerships in order to build new industries. This is uh, core to your business model. Talk about what public-private partnerships are that are helpful in, in your view and why they're so vital to catalyzing these kinds of investments. When you're trying to generate an entire industry that doesn't exist in the country today, which it basically doesn't exist today, you know, and the best way to do this is public-private partnership. And what I mean by that is with public support, when you have the the government behind on either lending or different types of IRA reports that if you build it a certain way, then there'll be a credit given to the end user. So a person buying an EV spends less on a car. All that reduces the risk from private funding. So because the risk on private funding is lower, more private funding also comes into the space. So now you have public and private funding, a lot more money coming in a lot quicker than would normally happen in an industry that was going from infant stage to a lot you know, to a mature stage. But what's good about that, it allows the industry to grow quickly. And once mature, public support and public economic support can be reduced and private funding takes over. So what it, what this has done has allowed to take an industry that is barely existing in this country to grow rapidly with the, with the combination of private-public, but over time, public will fall off and private it'll be all private. So I, I think this, I, and I think also the fact that we're focused on U.S. manufacturing is a great thing for the country. If we do succeed in five years or a little bit beyond that, what does the clean energy manufacturing ecosystem, or specifically the battery manufacturing ecosystem, look like? Well, I think I think if you can develop the south cell manufacturing plants, which is what we are, we're a cell manufacturer, and then all the upstream supply chain. You should have, there's enough minerals in North America to supply United States need for this type of industry for the next hundred years. If you want to get to electrification, you want to support the grid. The grid needs a lot of support on energy storage side, you know, EV needs a lot of support on the cell side. All that, all that will be available. And then you don't have to worry about any type of disruption from outside. Is it fair to say you're optimistic about America's manufacturing future in clean energy? I am. Optimistic, yes. Very optimistic. And I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. There's always going to be bumps and bruises along the way. And, but I think we're moving in the right direction. And I think everybody has, every, I think everybody down deep believes in the same thing, that we all want to build a great country. Everybody can have a great life and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, Lindsay, thank you so much. You're welcome, Stephen. Great to talk to you, man. Again, Lindsay Gorrell is the founder and CEO of Core Power. To learn more about Core Power's investments in American industry and workers, go to corepower.com slash carboncopy. That's K-O-R-E power.com slash carboncopy.